0: Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 363 being recorded on August 19th, 2015. I'm Ryan
1: Shroud. Oh shoot, I'm Josh Wallace. And I'm Alan Molentano.
2: You're
0: the second in line this time, Josh. Second in line.
2: Second in line, but I'm still sucking the second in line part.
0: Yeah, you can see I'm, I'm uh, in a remote location far, far away.
1: You're, uh, you're with the, it, it, Sebastian, right?
0: Yeah, I was with was where Sebastian used to be, but we sent him home. This is oh. this is my new home now. I'm at uh, I'm actually at the Intel Developer Forum in San Francisco, uh, and so my audio and video will sound differently. And I'm going to often look not at the camera because the camera is a nod spot on on this particular laptop. But um, we have a limited time with me. I hope you guys will be able to to make it without me for the rest of the show. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into some of the stuff from IDF, and then I'm gonna go get on a. Go go get in a car, not on a car, to get on a plane. But I guess also in a plane.
2: You know, it'd be really cool if you could, like, hold onto the hood and they'd swerve through traffic. (laughs) We'll see about that. Hey, Milo, for
0: that. So anyway, uh, PC Perspective Podcast, uh, website pcper.com if this is your first time with us, pcpercom slash podcast is where you can find all the back episodes, uh, download the MP3s, the RSS files, uh, video embeds, all that stuff, and if you uh, want to, you can actually sign up for a mailing list that we let you know when we record the show, we do stream the show while we record it at pcpercom slash live, you can go to pcpercom slash subscribe add uh, your name and email address to our short mailing list that all we use it for is to send you notifications about when we do live streams uh, whether it be this podcast or interviews with other people that happen to come in to the office or something along those lines so well uh, you know now that
2: you installed win 10 on that machine you're also sending everything to microsoft so they've got all your email addresses and every time we send you something you mean them not us right like i'm not sending it sure
0: I just looked at the wrong place on the screen again. Anyway, so let's get into the, the stuff that happened. I think the biggest story that came out this week is the release of Ashes of the Singularity, which is, I guess, not the release of the game. The game is not out yet, but they did release a DX12 benchmark prototype. So this is a what they call a pre-beta. They don't call it an alpha, but they call it a pre-beta. This is, um, It's a game developed by Stardock with an engine developed by oxide and the engine is called nitrous and um if, if maybe you're not familiar with it you should you might have heard the name before this is an engine that was originally implementing mantle uh and it was one of two really early examples that amd had uh battlefield um, Frostbite engine was the other one, uh, and this one were like the ones that would go to the the events and 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 things and have talks, and the developers would go up there and talk about the benefits of low level APIs. And what's interesting about their game is that it is an RTS, and it's a kind of a massive scale real time strategy game that kind of makes sense for the benefits you hear about for DirectX 12, where uh, low level APIs uh, can benefit you by um, Uh, allowing for more efficient use of the CPU, uh, allowing for more draw calls. If you have lots of units, thousands of units on screen, you're going to have thousands and tens of thousands of draw calls at the same time to really draw and and pretty up those units uh, on the screen. So it made sense. Now, when DirectX 12 was announced and Mantle has kind of fallen by the wayside, we've got Vulkan and DX12 Uh, We started talking with the Oxide guys about what were the plans for DirectX 12. They were going to port it to it, and that's kind of where we're at now. Um, In a partnership with Microsoft and Stardock and Oxide, they wanted to be the first ones out the door with a DX12 benchmark. So that's where we were at here. They let us get a hold of it for a few days early, and uh, we got to look at what the performance characteristics were for Uh, A handful of processors, a couple of GPUs across a couple of resolutions and a couple of image quality presets, and then two different APIs. So a total of like 80 different data points. Now, I don't want to walk through every single uh, benchmark result that we actually took, but what I think is important to take away is kind of the general synopsis. So we tested... Uh, The 5960X, eight-core processor. We tested the new Skylake 6700K, a quad-core processor. Just the Core i3-4330, which is a two-core processor. Then we tested two AMD CPUs, the FX8370, which is eight cores, four modules. And uh, this FX6300, which is a six-core, three-module part. So we got a bunch of different price ranges and a bunch of different kind of like platform considerations to take into account there. And... The, the the data that comes back from this benchmark is really in-depth, like they're not just giving you an average frame rate, they give you an average frame rate and average frame times, and then they give it to you broken down by, so it's a 180 second benchmark about, and there's a third of it that is called a normal workload, a third of it is a medium, and a third of it is a heavy workload. And those indicate the amount of draw calls that you get kind of categorized, right? So the heavy sections are are 20 plus thousand draw calls per second, medium is 10 to 20, and anything under 10,000 draw calls per second is considered like a normal workload. So they break it down in that way. And then they also actually break down and give you individual scenes, uh, a bunch of frame time data telling you if it's a CPU that's a bottleneck or the GPU that's a bottleneck at any given time. They actually present a whole lot of data that um, in our limited time, two days or so, with Benchmark, we didn't really get a chance to dive into uh like the frame times, individual frame time plotting and that and that stuff. But what we did do is we compared the average frame rates for the whole 880 seconds worth of testing, and then we also focused on the heavy results because that is the one that uh that the developers kind of pointed us towards would be more indicative of total direct X12 performance in the long term. Like if you're trying to push DirectX12, in other words, what would you get? So the, the results were interesting, right? So on the high-end processors, oh, and for, as far as GPUs, we looked at GTX 980 and an R9 290X. If you look at the GPUs, with the high-end CPUs, the GTX 980 saw very little scaling and actually uh, several times like reverse scaling by small margins. Right? Negative so we're scaling. Negative, yes, negative scaling. Uh, if you will. So like dropping from uh, 57 frames per second to 50 frames per second, right? That 1080p high is, is an example of that. Um, and as you went down the processor stack for them, like if you go down to the 6700K, you get very similar results. If you go down to the Core i3, you see that DirectX 12 is always faster, but it's by a fairly small margin. And as you go to the AMD processors, you see the same thing. With the Radeon R9 390X, that their gains are much larger across the board, going from DX11 to DX12, and much more consistent. Even with the Core i7 5960X at the high end, AMD gained a a huge amount of performance. Um, So, you know, there's there's kind of two ways to take take it out. So, like if you look at the AMD with the 5960X, you jump from like 43 to 78 frames per second, right? So, a, a huge amount. What um, what's interesting is if you, you look at it two ways, right? One is if you look at just DX11 versus DX11, the AMD frame rates are significantly lower than the NVIDIA frame rates. So the, uh, the, the kind of takeaway there is that the DX11 implementation on NVIDIA and GeForce drivers is significantly ahead of what AMD has. If you look at DX12, it has pretty much even the playing field between those two products, the 390X and the GTX 980, which are not exactly the same price, which is interesting, too. Um, So the question is, did AMD do a lot more work to their DX12 drivers to improve this much? Did NVIDIA do no work to their DX12 drivers to improve not very much? Or is it that DX12 just kind of homogenizes everything and makes it more like it's on the developer and the game engine to take advantage of these things? And so because of that, the performance on DX12 is going to be very similar between these two GPUs. which is what we saw. We just don't really know what the core is yet, like what the reasoning is. If we go back and we look at some more GPUs, maybe we'll get uh, a better idea of why all this was happening. Uh, but it, but it's pretty interesting to look at. And there's a ton of data in this story t- for you to kind of glance through. Five problems, Like I said, 80 different data points between the processors, CPUs, resolutions, and presets, and, and APIs. Uh, Josh, did you have any...
2: Like thoughts well, on this from, from what it looks. You know, like. it is it is going to be so engine dependent with the architecture. So, say for example, Grid Autosport. This is a uh, a product that that Intel had actually helped kind of pay for development and graphics implementation. You know, took took the place of NVIDIA's the way it meant to be played, and uh, AMD's uh, what if gaming evolved. Yeah. So, if we look at like the AMD results versus NVIDIA on that. We see like AMD running at eighty frames per second and NVIDIA at one hundred and seventeen, and that's at like ten eighty P. Not a big deal. You think okay, those are those are perfectly fine results, except that Nvidia seems to like this particular game better. And we probably can look at this and say, you know, in its base DX eleven implementation, it may do some uh what do you call it, just just the way it renders may be more applicable to NVIDIA's rendering pipeline, and so it, it does it a little bit faster. You know, just as we saw with Bitcoin mining, with AMD parts versus NVIDIA, and AMD did certain operations faster, and you were able to, you know, mine Bitcoin's NVIDIA. And with the DX11, it just kind of seems that this engine can do a few things faster on the NVIDIA. But then we look at DX12. and Because this was a Mantle part, I'm wondering if they didn't work a lot mostly with AMD to develop this and and, and get the basis of DX12 with their experience with Mantle so that on AMD parts, it becomes a lot more competitive what with what Nvidia has, and you know, certainly in a couple of points, Nvidia takes a couple of steps back, but it's not—it's not dramatic. It's not like killing performance. So you would mm-hmm. expect to see, oh, hey, you know, they got a DirectX 12 implementation, and they're going this much faster. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that—well, I don't know for sure, but <laughs> Nvidia probably did not have as much development time with this build as what AMD had. And also the basis of this, of course, is, is Mantle. And so AMD had a lot of experience uh, with not just their drivers, but the developer itself working at a low level that is more conducive to AMD parts. Did that make any sense at all, or am I just yeah? the
0: Yeah, the, the issue is, uh, from what I've been told, is that, Nvidia had, like, over a year with the source code to this game. Now, obviously, the source code has been changing, and op- things have been optimized, uh, but it's never been anything Nvidia has ever fallen back on, right? So there was a little bit of controversy with this release where Nvidia came out, like, the day before all the results were posted and said, um, hey, you know, we don't really think this is an accurate performance, and there's this big MSAA bug, and so, you know, we think you should wait for other tests before determining DX12 performance. And uh, that's a pretty cruddy statement, right? Um, because it is a real game and it is a real engine and from what we've been talking with the developer that like it is a pretty close representation of how the final game will ship. Um, and this has been turned around many times before where AMD comes around and says, hey, you shouldn't test with the new Batman game because it heavily favors NVIDIA you shouldn't test with Project Cars because it heavily favors NVIDIA. Uh, and, and in those cases, NVIDIA says, well, you got to do the work, right? They say, you got to if it, it just because they're or or we're optimizing for that game and you're not, doesn't mean that we're the bad guy here. And I think that exactly applies this way as well. Just because the developer or AMD is doing a better job of optimizing for this game and NVIDIA did not, for whatever reason, doesn't make it an invalid test. It is a game, but it is only a single game, which is true, right? So there will be other DX12 titles and benchmarks to come out before the end of the year that may tell different stories or they may tell the same story. And that will give us a better idea of... If this is a systemic issue with NVIDIA's current setup or AMD's advantage, or if it is more of a, hey, this is going to be similar to DX11 case-by-case basis, that type of stuff. Um, But it's really interesting data, and and based on the traffic that this story has gotten, it's been something people are very, very interested in.
2: Yeah. For sure. Anybody else have something else to say before I jump in? Go for it. Uh, you know, I kind of wonder in looking at these results if AMD has not, in fact, kind of bet the farm on DX12 in terms of software and driver development. I mean, how many releases have we had in the past year from AMD of major? We've had, what, the Omega in Decembers? In Decembers. Like, there's plurals. Um, and then some of the first DX12-based uh, drivers and, and their their Win uh, WinX, uh, what? Uh, 15.7.1s that I wonder if if their software development and driver development guys are really just focusing on kind of the future and saying, you know what, we're competitive enough in this DirectX 11 landscape. Yeah, we could spend 80% of our time to take the top five titles out there and improve them by 5% to get a little bit closer to NVIDIA on a lot of these benchmarks. Or we could take that and and just get a really solid foundation and baseline for DirectX 12, which yeah. is going to be our future, and it's going to be everybody's future, especially with I mean, Win 10 being free for anybody who has you know legal copies of, of seven and eight point
0: one. I mean, it's, it's very possible that's what it is, um, and and I hope that's what it is actually, and then it's not just a happy coincidence that they're ahead on DirectX 12 for now uh, with this title, right? It, we we've always said that AMD's driver team is is behind what
2: NVIDIA's team does,
0: and I think if you look at the DX11 results, you That's see why they're been saying they're, that. Because their guys the are like
2: a quarter funded from what I, NVIDIA I is. It. It's I
0: get it. I'm not saying they're less yeah. smart or or anything like that, but they just don't have the size of the personnel uh, to really do it up in the way that NVIDIA does. So it's possible that they just decided to invest everything in DX12 and, and plan for the future as opposed to trying to build for like you know the last couple of years. But I also don't think that Nvidia is going to just let this one go, right? They, if they do have significantly more resources and personnel, then I don't know how long it's going to take them to catch up. And uh, what happens then, right? For AMD, did they plan enough ahead in the future? I guess. Um,
2: let's well, it's nice into, to see a little bit of. Parity here that we haven't, you know, been seeing or lacking as of late. Yeah,
0: I agree. Let's uh, let's let's jump into again because of of my time constraint. A couple of things that I saw at IDF this year. Uh, one, I get. Well, I guess the one thing I'm going to talk about really is kind of the reveal of architectural information about Skylake processor finally. And I'm going to be honest with you and be up front. There's not a whole lot uh, that was talked about. There's some. It seems odd, right, for for uh, Haswell you know, would come to IDF and we'd go to multiple sessions and we'd have lots of individual press sessions about let's talk about the architecture and get your questions answered. This time it was very much more, a hey, media, you should come to that public Skylake session and uh, get all the information you need right there. Uh, and they didn't seem real interested in, in talking above that or, or more in-depth, right, and, and getting more information so, was a lot like pulling. So it's kind of like
2: time. NVIDIA's, 6,800 series of cards where they had the big land thing and invited everybody in for the unveiling and the press got to sit in the balcony and (laughs) gather what they needed. Yeah. Like yeah. so for
0: food. Let's go over this real quick, what the high-level parts are like. So what we know about Skylake now, we talked about the Core i7-6700K already and what it actually is as a consumer part. Um, but now we know a little bit more details about what's coming out, right? So they have a, a huge scalability where they're going to have 4.5-watt to 91-watt parts um, that are going to range in package sizes dramatically. Uh, and this is the first time they're going to have that big of a range from... Uh, from from a single architecture, and it's, and it's actually really, really cool. Um, but if you look at the architecture itself, uh, if we look at the core design, you know, there are a handful of changes, but nothing super, not, no one thing that stands out to change IPC. Uh, you know, they've got um, uh, segment optimization. They've got, you know, improved branch predictors, wider instruction buffers, faster prefetch, uh, lower latencies on the execution units, but they didn't really talk about how wide the execution units are, things like that. Um, uh, they have, if you look at the, the third slide there, the instruction window that's increasing, you get an idea of kind of this slow incremental, but consistent increase in the out of order instruction kind of handling, right? Which improve, which is how you improve your instructions per clock, your IPC, right? So you get your out of order window is you know, 224 versus what you already you look at in Sandy Bridge, and you look at uh, the energy register file count or the allocation queue, and how it's more than uh, more than doubled in the in that in that time frame. Again, nothing, no one feature that goes, wow, I can't believe they did that. But enough things that have added up over time that I think uh, it's it's interesting. The biggest changes came in the interconnect and the memory changes, right? So uh, the interconnect, the ring bus that goes, uh, connects all of the agents through the device, connects each individual CPU port, connects the graphics, connects the memory bus, it connects um, ED RAM if it's in there. That bandwidth has been essentially doubled internally, which explains a lot of the kind of memory latency, memory bandwidth improvements that we saw in synthetic tests, but didn't really have an explanation for because we didn't know anything about the architecture at the time. Um, so that's, that's actually a, a positive thing, that's good. Uh, and it may actually be more useful when it comes to uh, eight core designs, 12 core designs when you get into the Xeon, but it still is an interesting thing to talk about for the, the consumer side. And then for the eDRAM, uh, what we knew as Iris Pro on Broadwell and Haswell, that is going to exist again on Skylake. We don't have exact information on what SKUs are gonna be released with it. Um, But it's going to be available in 64, 128 gig iterations. But they've actually changed it a little bit so that it's a little bit more autonomous. And actually, the controller for it has moved from the kind of LLC, last-level cache, into the system agent so that it will have lower latency communications with the rest of the system. And that enables uh, a – what do they call it? They call it a – uh, I don't know, but it's it's basically it's not panel self refresh, self refresh, but it is a the ability for the display controller to basically read from eDRAM straight into a uh, uh, system memory, as opposed to having to go through the processor. Just kind of saving power uh, and, and making the the whole kind of design a little bit more efficient. In one of that's one of many ways that they've done that. The most interesting feature they added is called speed shift it is a marketing term for the idea of taking control from the operating system and putting it to the processor for changing the p states of the cpu so the p states or performance states are what the operating system sends down to a cpu today that says hey be it your higher performance be it your medium performance be it your low performance go to idle you know the operating system like if you ever go to your power settings and you look at um hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have uh, balanced or high performance or low power, those types of things. Those kind of change how the operating system thinks and how it sends the power commands down to the processor. With this version, uh, with speed shift, it actually takes that away from the operating system and it handles it all on the CPU. It kind of looks at, okay, what's the load look like? What's the request? What do the requests look like? And I'm going to handle all the shifting between this. The benefit is... Those transitions are now about 30 times faster um, going between those P states, uh, which won't have a dramatic effect on like any sustained benchmark, like your center bench scores or your media encoding timeframes aren't going to change. But what does change is snappiness, right? So on a low power part. Like one of the low power four and a half to 15 watt cpus like the touchscreen should be able to react quicker as it is able to jump up in frequency faster than it could when the operating system had to recognize that there was a uh, input being detected determine that it was long enough that it needed to change its frequency send the c- command down to the hardware to change frequency and then actually change the frequency now it can happen much more directly um The complication with this is that that only works with Windows 10, and it doesn't even work with Windows 10 today. Uh, They haven't implemented that into the operating system, Uh, and it will be, Intel won't say when it's coming, Uh, just you should ask Microsoft about that. I hate those types of responses, but um, no plans for Windows 8.1 support or Windows 7, Uh, and they're kind of working with the Linux community to see what they can get up uh, and running the for legacy operating systems it basically reacts in the previous way that it would right it kind of lets the operating system control it um uh, this this chip also adds uh, an integrated uh image signal processing unit which is unique to an intel cpu for the first time it's something you see on uh qualcomm socs arm socs quite frequently but now that you know Intel's heavily into tablets and small form factor devices, maybe even phones still with this type of uh, architecture that integrating an ISP on there allows them to do some interesting things for face recognition or uh, low power resolution, uh, high resolution captures, that type of stuff. Um, So, I mean, that's that's kind of a high level. overview. There's some a couple of other things that you guys can go uh, pick out and then read through the Skylake architecture piece that I posted up, but uh, there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know yet. I'm sure some other people that are here covering IDF will get more information about that and and post it up, and we'll we'll talk about it in the coming weeks, but uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. And then we also have a piece that looks at the Skylake Gen 9 graphics. Um, I don't need to go over any of this, really. I would just say that uh, it looks faster. uh, The 6700K has a 24 execution unit uh, configuration and apparently they're going to offer up to 72 execution unit options. I don't know where that's going to show up at, but that would be a significant jump over where they were at uh, last year, so or the last generation, I guess. So
2: Josh, hey, that, that layout through? makes a whole lot more sense than, than some of the previous ones. The die shot, yeah, uh, up top, you mean, yeah, that one.
0: You mean just because of the weight of how much graphics stuff is in there?
2: Like, yeah, and uh, especially the shared last level cache. I mean, obviously you're going to have uh, communication in between that and the system agent and memory. So, yeah, that uh, that seems to <laughs> uh, okay. Look at that. The, it was what the last one was like four cores all together in a long rectangle, and you had the mm-hmm. system agent on one side, and then you had the graphic. 4, and so this just makes the traces a little bit more manageable uh, when you're talking ring bus and and last level cache than what they had before. But that's just you know my layman's opinion. I don't have a double e, but you can't spell. I, I don't either. Beer um, without a double e. It's.
0: <laughs> I mean, it looks interesting. You know, obviously, one thing that we we're hoping to see is uh, like a desktop skew with 128 megs of the ed ram on it right because it can have some interesting uh implications when it comes to compute stuff not just in graphics right so it's yes less useful for a desktop consumer to have a 128 128 meg ed ram because you're not going to use integrated graphics Uh, but if you're using it for compute and it can have some impact on performance based on our Uh, benchmarks that we did even with that uh the the broadwell version of it the 5775 c i guess is what it is um that i would hope i hope we see something like that my inclination based on conversations i've had here is that we will not see that uh, at least not initially um so hopefully that changes as well Um, I guess, I mean, there's, I mean, we're, I'm kind of glossing over it because of time constraints here, but you guys should definitely go check out the Skelly processor architecture overview and the ashes of singularity test, because both of those were the things I did this week. And before we get into the things that Alan and Josh did this week, I'd 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 like
2: like to point out that in fact, I did not get anything up this week.
1: He couldn't get it up
2: couldn't get it up huh no i went to colorado too many times this week and
0: (laughs) uh well before we get into the rest of the stuff and i depart the podcast where it becomes the alan and josh and, and uh ken show i do want to thank today's podcast sponsor that's right everybody this episode of the pc perspective podcast is brought to you by casper We're welcoming Casper back into the fold of the PC Perspective podcast. They are an online retailer of premium mattresses at a fraction of the cost. You just said welcome
2: to the fold, and isn't that ironic because you cover it with sheets? Yeah. Clever.
0: Actually, more ironically, the mattress came to me folded. Yep right? Casper's revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings on to you. One of the ways that they do that is they actually ship the mattress to your door, which sounds crazy. If you've ever moved a mattress, you know, if you've got a king-size mattress and you're moving from an apartment to a house, or something like that, you think, how are you going to ship that? That That's like the biggest, bulkiest thing you have to do. Um, Their mattresses are made out of a a combination of three different materials. Uh, One of them is kind of memory foam and kind of a, a in, uh, synthetic latex, I guess, and it comes in a box that weighs about 110 pounds for the one that I got, and it shows up on your doorstep, and you go, oh, okay, and you and a friend, you know, because it's it's kind of heavy and, and, and dense, uh, move it upstairs, and you open it up, and it kind of poof, expands in the room. That's why they encourage you to open it up in the room. they are going to be using it. Uh, it's not a violent expansion of, uh, of a mattress, but it is a rather fast expansion, of a mattress um they are it's two technologies i'm sorry latex and memory foam come together for better nights and brighter days it's a comfortable mattress actually and i can say this with some reliability now that i am a casper mattress owner um my wife and i got one right in time to have a new baby so it seems like a good time to maybe try to get some better sleep we're going to have less sleep so the better the sleep can be that's probably a, a good thing i guess for us right uh you can buy it easily online. It's completely risk-free. This is the best part of it. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for a hundred days and uh, decide if you want to keep it. Right. So they ship it to you, and if after you know ninety-nine days you decide that you don't like it and you want to go back to your old mattress or you're going to try something else, you can absolutely do that. You can return it, no cost to you at all. Um,
2: but well, that's I I, that's that's kind of a crapshoot with my sample, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, do we is. really want to accept this mattress back from Josh Walrath?
0: Well, here's the thing. Uh, I do have a secret for you. They're not going to resell the mattress that you slept on for 99 days. They will either recycle it or donate it to a local shelter that allows for those types of things. So you don't have to worry about buying a previously used by Josh mattress. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really one of our biggest fears when buying a mattress, just as a nation. Or a selling point.
1: If you, if you look at it, listen, if you want to know if it was Josh's mattress, you just hit it with a UV light, and if it says Josh was here, then you know.
0: That would, that would be a very specific way to tell that, that that's the case. Uh, so, by the way, all Casper mattresses made in the USA. So here's the here's the call to action. Here's where you guys can do this. Uh, you can get a Casper mattress for $500 for a twin, $950 for a king size mattress. If you compare that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price point. And you can save an additional $50 uh, for our audience members if you go to casper.com slash pcper and enter the promo code pcper casper.com slash pcper promo code pcper and we thank casper for their support of uh the pc perspective podcast and for the support of my back and for that support as well so thank them thank you guys very much for that support um so this is the part where i casually say that i have to go get my bags from the hotel and go to the airport to take a red eye flight home
3: so you casually save all of our ears from the popping that's been happening for the past 20 minutes, yes. Unless I remove it in post, then it hasn't happened at all.
0: That might be really hard to remove in
1: post, yeah. It's not gonna happen
0: if we didn't have any of that when we did our test call today. Well, we? of course not, yeah,
1: I know, just of course not
0: in production, yeah. Of course not, of course not. So, but you guys, everybody else should stay tuned because uh, shorts, we're gonna talk about uh, a bunch of NVMe crap from IDF, yeah. Uh, some flash media summit stuff from IDF and Intel maybe getting into the um, variable refresh monitor support um, and uh, I don't have a pick. My pick is going to be red eyes. No, it's going to be USB Type C thumbsticks. Do you have a motherboard that supports
2: that yet? Type a yes, yes we do. Oh, <laughs> I mean, who do you think we are, Josh? Come on. Um, com. Obviously not the second-class <laughs> operation I am.
0: Correct. All right. Uh, that's it for me, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the three of you for covering for me, and um, I can't wait to listen to the rest of this podcast tomorrow afternoon when I get home. And you can see I will still be overseeing the podcast from a distance, uh, just in a very stationary, non-moving fashion. Okay. Bye, guys.
1: Good night.
2: He's, Suddenly very quiet. He's
1: still, he's still oddly... Yes, I was just annoy, enjoying the uh, non-annoying... Quiet. Enjoy yeah, the silence. Enjoy the silence. This is kind of intimidating here. I have, I have just Ryan's poster child self just uh, staring over at me. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I guess we're kind of working backwards. So we're going to talk about IDF SSD stuff. And then I guess I'll we'll work backwards and talk about Flash Memory Summit SSD stuff. But it all kind of blends together because there was stuff at one that wasn't at the other and vice versa. So we might as well just mash it all up.
2: But um, hey, it's all storage, so...
1: Yeah, it's all storage, so, so I'm just going like, to go on a non-clicky Alan Melvin marathon here for a little while. Um, so, uh, in the, the cover term or the marketing term for Intel's Crosspoint, which... Was itself a marketing term, um, kind of, or just the name of memory. Well, they're going to put that memory in devices that are going to fall under the Optane name, not with a C, with a P. Um, so it's basically cross point flash memory, not sorry, not flash memory. Man, I got to get out of that habit. Cross point memory inside of devices, and it goes really fast. So they had like a prototype PCIe NVMe device. Uh, just showing a comparison of those results with um, those results of a P thirty seven hundred, which is a very fast NVMe PCIe SSD, which we've reviewed in the past. Um, and they're showing basically five times the random performance at a queue depth of eight, which is like a you know kind of a typical queue depth for like workloads. And then they're showing what I think is even more significant is a seven times performance increase at a queue depth of one. And the reason that that is much more significant in this case is that if you can increase the random performance to that level, like to seven times increase, in other words, doing seven, over 76,000 IOPS, QDF1 means you're only giving the SSD, you're giving it no heads up. You're getting a response, you're asking for the next request. Like you're sending the next request. For, this is oh, what I want now! Yeah, I want this one. And then as soon as that one comes back... Oh, I want this one. Like imagine if your spouse was trying to go shopping and instead of giving her the list, which would be like a queue, you just told her, "Could you go buy me some eggs?" And then when she got back, uh, Could I need some pickles. Could you go get some pickles?" And then when she like so that's basically Q depth 1, right? But just kind of like in shopping. Uh, are you teaching data structures now? It's kind of no, but it, this is why it's so significant. If if your wife was able to go back and forth to the store at like light speed, you almost don't even need the queue, right? You don't even need the list because the tra- the turnaround is so quick. And that's kind of the territory you get into here. In other words, if you had a um, this Optane SSD in the same system as compared to like a P3700 and similar systems doing similar kind of workloads, chances are the Optane part is going to run a lot closer to up to one, right? Because if you have the same software, it's do- has the same amount of requests going to the SSD per second, uh, this thing is just going to be able to push through. Like, even if even if there is kind of a queue, it's just going to blow through the request so quickly that the queue is very quickly going to just shallow right back down to, like, just queue depth of one, um, which is awesome, right? That's uh, Yeah,
2: but what if they order, what if they say in the instructions that, if you go to a nearby grocery store and buy some bread, also if they have eggs, buy six. Will the, the stuff
1: bring back six loaves of bread? Hmm. I don't know. It all depends on if they include Intel Engineer Humor <laughs> into the firmware.
3: So, I, I I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm probably wrong. Does that mean if it can do 76,000 IOs at depth 1 read? Yeah that that is that it will always be doing at least 76,000 IOs.
1: No. Okay. Like, it'll... In other words, the chances are it's going to turn around so quickly that the system will be the delay between the IOs. Okay. Like, if you have a system that has to do something with the IOs, for example, like, not just something that's turning around, mm-hmm. like a web server, yeah. but if you have, like, a database or something that's actually crunching data, like... uh Anything that you would normally be waiting on the SSD on, in other words, the P3700 that's only able to service those at a rate of 10,000 per The second. fastest SSD we've ever the tested. The fastest SSD we've ever tested, basically. It's only able to do that at around 10,000. So if you have, uh, say, some piece of software that's just uh, grabs one piece of information off of storage, does something with it, and then, say, puts it back, mm-hmm. and then it can't do other things ahead. It has to just do that in a sequential fashion, right? Um, this cross-point-based SSD is going to remove the... the. It'll Any time you were waiting on storage would be reduced to one-seventh of that time, basically. Um, so, you you know, it depends on the application and how long it's doing math versus how long it's waiting on storage, but this is really pushing a lot closer to, like, the speed of RAM um, to the point where you might be able to just code things. Like, if you you could have... Uh, things that handle huge data sets and you don't necessarily need a whole bunch of ram in that system that's handling a large data set you could start shifting to just having this very large capacity relatively um, you know solid-state drive that's just able to you know just point the database or whatever that software is straight at this device as opposed to using ram for it and needing like really high demands on ram and since uh, we don't have exact prices, but we know that this, these parts are going to be much cheaper, I would imagine, than RAM. Uh, the quote I've got was, in between the price of DRAM and NAND flash memory. But since the first like prototype-ish kind of part we're seeing is not like a hybrid of NAND and crosspoint, it is just, oh, we're just going to make something that's all crosspoint? I'm inclined to think that their cost per gig is just going to be much closer to NAND flash than it is to DRAM for for this stuff only going on kind of the hint of you know like how they're designing this thing you want one of these hey, you gotta
2: pay for that r&d first
1: yeah that's true that's true
3: the, cra- the crazy part is like if it's if it's within let, let's say it's five dollars per gig when it launches and okay you know what the
1: x25m launch at that like was around round there it was like 600 700 bucks for 80 gig yeah so so, so it was around there yeah but
3: the thing here is, what's anyone else gonna do? Like, what? What's, I don't know. What's, any other manufacturer? What are they gonna do? They're to gonna go like They're this? gonna
1: start trying to like make phase change work for them for whatever their phase change kind yeah. of ish technology is. It
3: It just seems like so crazy far ahead, and maybe it isn't.
2: But
1: yeah, I mean, yeah. This is just. This is really good and it's really exciting for storage stuff. how,
2: how does it compare to B4? Oh,
1: you want to? design. You want to jump to Oh, wait, we're not I haven't written anything on that yet. You have not. No.
2: Do you want to broach that or yeah, we have to a later well, We can
1: we can kind of There's there's something from Flash Memory Summit that was uh, XOR. That that was actually uh more it was flash. It was not this. Um but it's just, like, a faster type of NorFlash. NorFlash is the stuff that's in the BIOS of your computer that takes forever to update your firmware on. And, like, there was a company Flash Memory Summit that's pushing a faster version of that. But, I hate to say it, stuff like Crosspoint is kind of going to eat their lunch, too, I think. Or, at a minimum, it's going to be on par with it. But I really think it's just going to eat Probably its Probably going further along. I mean, it has, it has Intel and Micron behind it, so that's just, you know, two 800-pound gorillas. So, so
3: like is it intel and micron in the same imft sort of yeah. joint venture okay they're doing it so yeah. we could potentially see this sold to other people
1: sure okay yeah we can
3: because it'd be it'd be an interesting thing if intel just kept them to themselves and
1: completely cornered the market with with with, with my understanding of this architecture of this fly, like the only complication would be that you would need to make your controllers simpler 'cause it's it's you know it's you you can random write to it like i, I think it's addressable like to a word or double word like that's your basically you're just talking like sixteen or thirty two bits you can just randomly write to it like that's way less than a sector right could you imagine like just does you could you could theoretically have one of these devices and just do random single sector like, we usually do random 4K. That's what you hear about. single sector is half of a K. <laughs> so take take the typical thing that we use for our benchmarking, divide it into an eighth of that, and then you could randomly access this, and it, w- it should be, like, no different as far as the latency or any of that. When you try to do this with NAND, you try to random write to it, and NAND has to do this musical chair thing with Flash where, like, it has to erase blocks, and it can only erase, like, an eight or, a, like, a six megabyte block at a time. So if you try to randomly... Do 4K writes to it for, and you got to have
2: some cash involved, and then you've got to have some error correction. Then, and, and you, you got to have cash. Other... You got
1: to have error correction. I might well, I imagine CrossPoint will and, probably. And know. what
2: happens if power goes out and you're, you know, erasing something, and you got to have bigger capacitors? Yeah. And,
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, you might still see some kind of capacitance stuff like that on like a CrossPoint SSD, but not to protect nearly as much of it as like on a NAND-based SSD. You're not going to have huge, you know, chunks of metadata for wear leveling and like all this other stuff and like just block management for flash. It's and how just, what? How did they handle wear wear handling with with this? With with CrossPoint, they they yeah. haven't gotten into any of it. But since the endurance is so much higher than flash, they might not even care. It's probably still just a bit of a reprofiling. Provisioning? Uh, there might be a very small amount of overprovisioning. Like th- this is again, this is much closer to RAM, and you don't have over-provisioning in RAM. Yeah. So it's really there. There will probably be some very small amount of it. Like probably more like what you see on like a hard drive, which is just like a percent or something yeah. worth of just extra sectors, kind of set off to the side, just in case, right? So that the capacity doesn't have to shrink below what you know what's being visible in case something does. You know, you do get some bad. Bad, whatever the, uh, I don't even know if they'll be called blocks for this. <laughs> um, I mean, it is possible, right? And there will be some kind of probably much lighter error correction uh, in place just to make sure the equivalent of like ECC for DRAM, probably. Yeah.
2: It well, really, we like think like we didn't six mention six or seven bits per 64 bits or whatever yeah. that is. Probably
1: something like that. It, yeah. yeah. We didn't mention the
2: other
3: application they announced for Optane. Uh, which one was that? They announced that they will be shipping DIMMs for Xeon systems with.
1: Our oh yeah, team. yeah, they did. Um, so when are they going to come out with butane? <laughs> so the the the, the DIMMs for Xeon thing is basically it's following the NV DIM, probably following the NV DIM uh, spec, which is just a way to make it so that you can have uh you know non-volatile storage on DIM format. Plugged into, and it's been for servers, and of course, like Ken said, just said, you know, they're announcing it for Xeons. That's great because it's been kind of like this, kind of a niche thing before for some servers and like some manufacturers are trying to come and like pull, ra- you know, huddle around the standard and everything. But if you have Intel getting behind it and saying, "Hey, we're going to launch this product, and we're going to like certify it for Xeon systems and stuff like that," that means, you know, you're just going to get a lot more support for the NVDIM thing. Um, and I think that this technology will take more, much more advantage of NVDIM because now you have, like, the bandwidth of you, that you would get, like, over the bus that the RAM is speaking to the CPU over. Except you're just talking to, in this case, like, Crosspoint dies instead of RAM dies. Um, and Crosspoint is fast enough to where you could probably just execute straight out of it. So. And it's not volatile. And it's not volatile. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like, like I was... I, I've said this to a few people earlier this week that have been asking about, like, what does this stuff really mean and everything? And the, the simple thing I say is if this stuff came out like 10 years ago or 15 years ago or something like, your computer would not be It would not be architected the same. The software and the hardware would be very, very different, right? Like you, when you updated Windows, it would just update part of its image that's just kind of like laying in the cross-point memory. And then when you want to start it back up like it wouldn't even really have to boot or just go through any kind of a procedure it would just start executing straight out of the cross point like not even like not even like opening a hibernation file it would just basically just start running right back out of that again right it's just it would just pick up where it left off and basically be not just like instant on where it's within like a second or two but like you just like you know, hit the button and it's just the screen comes back and that's it. Like you're just up and where you were before. Um, yeah, but since it's come out now and not 10 or 15 years ago, we're going to have to wait for some of these changes. Just when we think storage is getting boring, they suck us back in. That's not, it's not they getting suck boring us back in, not getting boring with this. Um, so a couple of days ago we post, or was that yesterday? I think it was yesterday. They're all kind of blurring already. Um, Kingston had a NVMe PCIe SSD at IDF. We're still talking about IDF stuff, not Flash Memory Summit. Uh, and they showed, uh, you know, basically a pretty pretty decent uh, performance 236,000 IOs per second um, out of a, uh, I am assuming, PCIe by 4 controller of some sort. Um, and we weren't sure what it was until Ryan caught this picture. A couple like, actually, almost a couple minutes ago, um, of the front of the prototype board, and then I went back through my Flash Memory Summit pictures and compared that to this picture. Hmm. Looks kind of the same. Like, the exact same thing. Turns out, that is, that was at the Faison booth, and that is the Faison 5007 Tech E7 controller, which probably everybody's just going to start calling the E7, just like how we've Referred to the Phison S10 SATA controller in the past, Um, so that's all we know for now, right? We just know that Kingston has a prototype that's based on that controller, and that's good, right? It just means like that part's going to start circulating out there, and you're going to have more NVMe PCIe SSDs. So speaking of which, speaking of which, uh, oh look, it's another PCIe NVMe SSD. This time from OCZ, which is going to be called the Revo Drive 400. Um, and so what you're looking at is basically the same kind of deal we've seen with like, Plextor, PC, uh, PCIe SSDs, and you know some other manufacturers. They basically make the part in the M.2 form factor, and then when you want to make a half height, half length, uh, you know basically add-in card for your system, they just make a spiffy looking adapter board and. They just basically, you know, put the M.2 part on there and sell it as a, you know, PCIe card for systems that don't have the M.2 port. Since it's pretty easy, you're just connecting four PCI you know, four sets of PCIe lanes to the system bus. Um, and uh, other details we know, Ryan said he was told November. I'm hoping that this will be coming out November. Um, and all the parts should be Toshiba. So you're, to, you know, same thing... OCZ has been doing since they got acquired by Toshiba. So you have OCZ, or you have a, you're going to have a Toshiba controller coupled with Toshiba flash. Put it in an SSD that's uh, firmware tuned for consumer, and OCZ is basically the consumer arm of Toshiba now. From from the looks of their past few releases. So that was another PCIe NVMe SSD. Uh now let's. Jump over to Flash Memory Summit, which brings me to the first thing, at least the first thing in our rundown. Uh, this was pretty cool. I saw these guys last year, and they didn't have parts that were, like, complete yet, or complete enough to where you think you might be able to just buy them retail, and I think they're I think they're getting pretty close. These guys were uh, the companies called Nova Chips. Um, they were tailoring more towards, like, military and embedded and, like... That that sort of thing for their storage, uh, as far as what they were saying last year. This year, they seem to be going branching out a little more mainstream uh, towards the end of, you know, having a SATA part, for example. Um, but the, the the trick to what Nova Chips does, and it's visible in the first picture on this article here, is that they have a technology that lets them put a bunch of dies within a package. That's so, that's only part A, but part B is having a controller be able to talk to that many dies. There's kind of a limit on how many dies a controller can really communicate with. It's kind of like a fan out thing, or just there's other physical and logical limits to to what you can do there as far as how many dies per channel um, of a controller. Well, uh, Samsung last week you guys heard Samsung had a 16 terabyte, um, and actually theirs was a SAS. SSD and uh, meanwhile Nova Chips actually had a 16 terabyte SATA SSD might take you quite a while to fill it <laughs> over SATA but uh, it, it was there and it was you know within Th- that
2: that might be able to handle my Steam game drive
1: <laughs> for now for now yeah um, so the trick to getting this much data or this many dies connected to one controller and in turn giving you that much like storage capacity is is let's see. Here's like conventional SSD, right? You have a certain number of channels, certain uh, number of dies um, per channel, and then you have the Nova chip stuff. Which if you look here, usually a chip package would just be like inside of a chip package where you had flash memory dies stacked. It would look like what's on the right side here, uh, just that stack of dies inside the packaging. This is the pa- this is what the package looks like before they encase it in the black plastic that you usually see. Um, the Nova chips has this extra little controller in there on the side and it acts as an interface between the flash and then a different communication method in order to talk to back to the controller. And what that communication method is, is a ring bus, um, which is actually Ryan was kind of touching on with the Skylike stuff. And like, that's what CPUs use internally to be able to communicate data between the cores you're basically trying to have, you know, a lot of things sharing one common bus, and, and ring bus is a, a good way to do that, just, you know, in, in practice. Um, Nova Chips decided to apply that to flash memory. Uh, just the trick is that they have to package the flash memory themselves to be able to do this. Um, but you're talking about 800 to 1600 megabyte per second per ring. So, obviously, the the ring is not the limit on the bandwidth there. Um, and with the way the flash memory dies work, typically the controller just kind of, like, sends a small chunk of data to one specific die. And then there's a buffer on the die, and then the, the die actually does the work as far as actually writing to the flash. And it does that while the controller could be off doing something else, sending data to another die. So you can really scale these things quite high without any other kind of adverse effects. You just need, you know, the ring, which is what they added. Um, and they did have this guy on display, which they actually also had on display last year, which made my jaw <laughs> drop. Uh, and uh, that's a double-sided PCB, of by course. the way. Um, yeah, there was, That's a lot of flash. That's a lot of flash. And I'm pretty sure all of those were like 16 stack. I mean, they were just like, how much could we possibly throw on a PCB? So that's a full height, full length, but just like with how an much ungodly. Storage is that? I, I actually forgot the number. But it was a large it's number. Too big for you to remember. It's, yeah. I think I think it just yeah broke my brain or something, and I just couldn't remember it. Um, another cool comparison between last year and this year, just from the on like the how you develop like a part kind of thing. Um, this was uh, FPGA connected to flash, so you have like these two what look like PCI cards um, are actually just like cards full of flash memory. And then they had this huge system with like a compact flash card that was actually the programming for the FPGA, and it would basically, this thing would boot up, and it would load the code to emulate the controller as they were going to, before they produced it basically as an ASIC, and then that was last year, and then this year, there's a couple of boards with just this tiny little chip there instead of a whole bunch of stuff, and that was basically just the controller. Um, and then forward a little bit more, and there's the controller on an actual board, you know, actual PCIe card just running. So that was their NVMe uh, development process, basically. Uh, so just interesting to be able to see the guts of something like that in, like, the three different stages of, uh, of development. Um, and yeah, they had, like, SATA parts, like, four terabyte SATA SSD and a seven millimeter enclosure like that's the most I've seen in that size enclosure anywhere even including Samsung because they have yet to make like an 850 or 860 Evo in 4 terabyte capacity they can do it just they haven't just produced the part yet and these guys are doing it and they're doing it with smaller capacity per die because they can stack more of them basically so all pretty cool stuff from from the NovaChips guys uh, next up We're almost there. Almost. Almost. Silicon Motion SM2260 controller. All right, so Silicon Motion made the 2246. We've reviewed many of those SSDs that they had on their wall that had that controller in them. Uh, But now there is a 2260 coming. And it is PCIe. And go figure. It's NVMe. (laughs) Like, you didn't see that coming. And it's available in M.2, and they also were showing a uh, uh, SATA Express form factor, which kind of seems like a waste of the controller because SATA Express is only two lanes of PCIe. But, you know, they're just demoing, hey, look, you can we can make it in this form factor. We don't know if anybody's going to actually use it in this form factor, but here it is. Um, the specs look, you know, on par with uh, other competing... Um, NVMe PCIe parts Uh, so again this is just like we're just waiting for this stuff to come out because as soon as all this stuff comes out you're going to see less compatibility issues like oddball issues with like motherboard NVMe booting and OS support and stuff like that they're not really going to have a choice but to fix it because you're going to have all these parts um, out there that's enough storage stuff for now we're going to take a break thank the lord yes So what's this Intel adaptive sync thing there, Josh?
2: Well, apparently it's a lot cheaper to actually use uh, infrastructure that's already there and adapt it for your own use in certain scenarios. Basically what AMD kind of did for FreeSync with some of their own software tuning. Certainly not what Nvidia did with G-Sync but it looks like Intel is jumping on the bus because, hey, Adaptive Sync is already there and there's some work that already went on and uh, it's something that people like and it's something that is kind of needed in terms of gaming. Because I'm sitting here between uh, three 60Hz monitors that don't have sync or G-Sync and gaming can sometimes become a little chugaholic at the resolutions that I'm sitting at. So... It's nice to see that uh, Intel said, you know what, here's a solution to a problem. We can implement it for essentially free because it's part of the spec. And away they go.
1: I wonder how far back they'll be able to go on their CPUs or they could just implement this in their driver and just like, yeah, I wonder that's how. a really f- good question. Yeah, I wonder how I flexible they
2: are. Well, obviously, it's got to be a, a DP 1.2A compliant uh, output. Sure and so you'll have to look up which of their uh, cpu's actually support that specification the way scott at tech report who was the original source for this story was talking
3: he said sources close to the situation <laughs> said that even skylake might not be able to support it like it might be the next uh, revision like it might not skylake might not be fully compliant
2: And that would make sense, because, uh, what, originally Adaptive Sync was on a lot of mobile parts, and not every mobile part actually worked with that. Uh, So, you know, say several years ago, Intel looked, hey, you know, we can get X amount of of savings if we did this, but we'd have to redesign a part. It's already a couple of years down the, uh, the pipeline. Do we want to do that? And probably they came back and said, no, it's not worth a damn. But then, G-Sync and FreeSync is is now the next new turf battle for displays, yeah. and uh, Intel wants to get that. But yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if if their parts did not, not support .2A in that uh, in that scenario. It'd be cool to
3: see a VRR technology roll out, and we not have to like see a new wave of monitors like this would work with yeah. all the FreeSync monitors. That's true. So that'd be nice. That's true. We would have to keep waiting for monitors to come out from either side.
1: This might push <sighs> NVIDIA to like make whatever their next version of G-Sync also support FreeSync output. It's possible.
3: Maybe. The amount of people gaming on Intel GPUs
1: is pretty low. It's true. But it'd be a cool feature to have. There's there's lots of like, there's lots of games that Intel GPUs can handle though that a lot of people play though. Like there yeah, are and games not that only are that, light. but
2: every year they go up in performance pretty yeah, true. significantly. True.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can kind of get away with Wow on like Intel integrated now, can you? With like Skylake at least.
2: Yeah, and then Probably. certainly Dota Two and yeah, Dota Two is fine
1: and...
3: Yeah, but you don't need VRR for Dota Two because it maxes out that's even true. integrated graphics. Yeah, Dota Two just <laughs> it anyway.
1: Um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's cool. Um, oh, hey, wait, I wasn't done with storage. Oh, sorry. God. Oh, well, this one's quick. So we've tested uh, Western Digital red uh, six terabyte we tested a green six terabyte the only thing that was missing was like the black and the red pro to be made all the way up to six terabyte and now they are so that's a thing um they up to the cache to 128 meg which i think was the same amount that was on the other six terabyte models um
2: and what for a spinning drive it's doing some 210 megabyte per yeah, second. Yeah,
1: 214 meg per second. Realize that's not across the whole drive, that's only at the beginning, but if it starts off that high it probably tapers to probably around 100 probably versus...
2: 140 considering how my 4 terabyte Toshiba
1: does. Oh, okay. Well then, yeah, it never
2: know. gets below I think 110 in that one. It's 170 to 110, but anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go so it just depends on how they orient uh, the tracks in the drive. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, really quick for a drive and uh I but I would say uh if you're going to use the black or the red pro, those are 7200 rpm drives with a lot of platters in them and they're not helium filled. So um back up. No, no, not not back up so much <laughs> well. If you don't plan on having a fan blowing across them, back up they're gonna get a little warm yeah they will get warm they will cook um but honestly if you even if you put a green in a case with no airflow it'll eventually start cooking you know you just got a hunk of metal with a watt an amount of wattage just being pumped into it uh so it's got to go somewhere just going to start radiating heat eventually unless you're you know cooling it actively somehow Ah, all right. Enough of the storage. Uh, Lee and Lee and ASUS ROG combine like wonder twin powers. Activate and create a mini ITX rhombus. What? What? What is it? A rhombus. A rhombus. <laughs> oh well, yes, it is a rhombus. Back
2: your eighth grade geometry. I
1: feel like I'm playing Battlezone. <laughs> uh, it is a cool looking case. It's very
2: cool yeah you know speaking of battle what was that uh, uh arctic fox is that that one the late 80s tank game in in our antarctica that you're fighting the aliens uh Star Wars seven No, it's i think it's oh. actually arctic
1: fox i don't know
2: maybe but anyway yeah you, you had big rhomboids on skis chasing you with cannons yeah it's awesome
1: so let's see what they're do here. Uh, mini ITX, Lian Lee, Lee case. It's nice. Yeah. It's pretty Yeah, it's, it's
2: ROG branded. It's Lian Lee, Lee, so uh, the design is interesting. It can handle water cooling. If if you want to scroll up, you can see it's a, it's an interesting huh. external solution with posts. So you huh. mount it on all the posts and you got the in there, and the uh, the tubes go through those two back, and you've got a water-cooled solution that kind of has an industrial flavor to it. I don't mm-hmm. know if you want to lick it, but you know, I, I imagine because it's easily accessible, some people will.
3: That also it. would make the all-in-one radiator a lot easier to install the case, so you can just take off that panel and bolt it down instead of having to hold it up there to the top of the case and screw in from the other side. Yeah. As long as you the hoses forehands.
1: are... As long as the hoses are spaced... Like that way. That's a pretty big cutout. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It is definitely, it's definitely cool looking. It's neat. Alright, sweet. Oh, wait, how much is it? No, I don't think they've said. We don't know. They haven't said. No, darn. Money, no whammy. Okay. Uh, let's see. What's next? Oh, uh, well, we're done with the news and the reviews. Because so- it's over an hour. It's over now. Glad we are. And then we get to skip Ryan because he's not here. Uh, And then. uh, Well, you could
2: because his pick is a supersonic uh, private jet for less than ten cents a gigabyte. He did say he was flying in first class. He got upgraded, so you know. Well, well, him. All right. Because he'll get there what thirty feet faster than the people (laughs) in economy. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one percent. Because distance is time. Yeah, in this kind of place, uh, I, I yeah. see. Time is a flat circle.
1: Um. <laughs> okay. My head exploded. Uh, Josh. Me. You got a pick of the week.
2: Okay, so you know I've I've had this Corsair case for a long time, and and they had this issue with their two hundred millimeter fans in that they just didn't last, and they sound really bad pretty quickly, and you start thinking you're in the mafia, the way you're talking about it, because you're so frustrated Okay. the sound coming out of the computer. And so I, I jimmied one of these Thermaltake 200mm fans in there, and I wasn't able to install my second drive bay, but that's okay, because I didn't need my second drive bay, <laughs> because Corsair decided to make a 200mm fan that was not standard size. Oh. But you know what? For fourteen bucks, it's worth it. My computer's quiet. My wife is not complaining about that. But uh, you know, 14,
1: fourteen bucks for a two hundred millimeter fan—that thing making. Yeah,
2: I, I think the on my
1: six fifty T,
2: the
3: front end takes the two hundred, the two hundred millimeter, and it's a terrible fan. It's a terrible, terrible oh, fan.
1: Yeah, and I just, yeah. I was just thinking this might make a cool looking desk fan. Like just you know,
2: yeah, sit yeah. Blowing on blowing all over you. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. Right. $14 seems like a
3: worthy upgrade if you have one of those cases with the yes. with that front intake.
2: Or I guess it the, the top. top so, because they've, yeah. they've got the top output. Yeah. Wow.
1: Just, but yeah, that's just going terrible. over my
2: hard drives. Yeah, terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible.
1: Terrible, terrible. Okay. That's All right.
2: So, uh, $14. Anybody can afford it except Ken because he's
1: an intern <laughs> on oh. intern wages. So I was looking for something the other day to mute my system after a certain amount of time like either when the lock screen came up or just some way well in other words you know the computer's at the other end of my house sometimes i sit down at it and do some stuff and then i get up and i go off somewhere else and there's like facebook still open or something else still open and then you have just like random sounds coming from the other end of the house right Gets kind of annoying so i was trying to figure out hey how the heck do i set this thing in mute like some way to do it automatically and there were a few apps that came out, like, in the XP time frame that didn't seem to work on a Windows 8.1 install, even though some said they would work with, like, compatibility mode, but still couldn't get it to work. But I found this thing uh, called System Silencer, which I guess started out meaning to automatically mute things, but then the guy expanded it to add a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, so you can set it to, like, auto-lock... You know, auto shut off your screen, kill specific processes, run specific programs. Like you just basically tell it to do different things at different amounts of time of idle, um, and it does it pretty intelligently. Like if you if you use the toggle the mute thing after a certain amount of time, like it will automatically mute after that amount of time, and then as soon as you move your mouse, it'll act. You can watch it. The little volume thing pops back up on the screen, and it automatically unmutes um, as soon as you move your mouse. Pretty cool. Um, so it's, uh, made by a guy named Nozavi. Herb. Um. Frank Tom. Pat. Yeah. So, face. so, so if you, if you want to download this, you might want to just link it right out of the show notes because if you Google his website, uh, or then if you Google, go if you Google Jeremy system silencers. Vogel. A system silencer takes you to a page that, like, doesn't exist on his domain because I guess he's under maintenance, as indicated on this apps.nozavi.com page. But that's where you can download it from. Not Sketch at all. It's, yeah. I guess he used to have a nice site, and then... Here, click this hyperlink and download this EXE and run it. Yeah, Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've run it. It didn't infect <laughs> stuff. And, you know, it's that's always good. Yeah, it's Jared work.
2: from Jared uh, from Subway uh, originally uh, invested in that website and
1: went uh, <laughs> downhill quickly. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, that's that, folks. Um, Brian's not here, so I guess we won't have that much of an outro, but I would say, you know, follow us on the Twitters and the, at PCPers and the, at. Josh. Well, we could do
2: the introductions, just show Ryan.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah. Do it. He is right but, over there. He's, there
2: he I is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I well. didn't get nearly as high as I needed to with, no, with no,
1: that. No, it's he, He's not Cartman. Um. Anyway. so Respect I thought I. You know, Twitter.com slash Ryan Shrout, Twitter.com slash PCPer, Twitter.com slash Malentano, Twitter.com slash
2: Josh D. Walrath.
1: There you go. And then, uh, Twitter.com slash The Missing Canadian. And <laughs> that'd be a pretty good Twitter name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Missing Canadian. Damn it. Someone's probably going to already snap it up. Oh, well. Ken's working on it. Um, Ooh, and it's uh, available. It's available, yeah. Very Take nice. it. Go to it. Uh, com slash podcast for the show notes and the stuff. And, uh, I guess that's it, guys. I might stick around a little bit more afterwards for a few minutes if i want to answer chat questions i don't know if you're game josh
2: i can but i need to take a small break Uh, i think my dog is behind my computer desk and i could just show it out here quickly
1: (laughs) damn it dog get out of there let's close the show